All right, everyone, thanks for coming tonight. I have uh, that it is seven o'clock, so we will dive in once more. Uh, the first week we talked about, we kind of unpacked truth. What does it mean to say that something is true? Last week we talked about the nature of love. Is love something that I have the power to define? And d does love change based off my thinking and feeling? Or is there an essence to what love is? Could I actually teach a class about what love is? And we did that last week. So love is something that is knowable and something that can't be controlled by our own thinking and our own feeling. And so now that we know that, we wanna have a conversation tonight about the truth about us. What is a human person? We live in a culture that is increasingly confused about what it is to be a human being, what it is to be a human person. And so I just wanna offer you kind of some basic talking points tonight to help us unpack and kind of have a little bit of a, of a framework when we get into conversation with, uh, with good people in our culture today about what the church believes about who, what a human being or who a human being is. And so let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, you were sent by the Father to reveal us to us. We give you permission to do that, and we pray for the grace to know who we are and to know that our identity is rooted in you. We ask all this in your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are three quotes at the top of your page, and I want to start tonight by offering you three different Christian perspectives about who a human person is. And each of these kind of ties in a little bit um, to, uh, to what I want to present to you tonight. So first quote comes from C.S. Lewis. Are we, have we heard of him? He's a famous British Christian author. Um, he uh, was a contemporary of J.R.R. Tolkien. He's the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. I talked about those last week. Okay, so C.S. Lewis, what does C.S. Lewis tell us? There are no ordinary people. Does science tell us that that's true? That each and every person is unique and unrepeatable? Yes. Okay, as we actually learn more and more uh, science, the genetic code, all of these things, we discover more and more that actually it is, it would be virtually impossible to repeat in every possible way, in every possible likeness, a human being. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Sometimes we forget that human beings, every single one of us, uh, has a definitive beginning, but does not have a, de a definitive end. Uh, the Christian perspective of a human being has always been that human beings are eternal. Eternal does not mean infinite. What's the difference? An infinite being has no beginning and no end. What would be an infinite being? God. No beginning and no end. What's the difference between infinite and eternal? An eternal being has a definitive beginning. Do you have a definitive beginning? Did the world exist before you did? Yes. Did truth exist before you did? Yes. Did love exist before you did? Yes. And so did the nature of a human being exist before you did? Yes. Okay, so we didn't create ourselves. We did not come into a world. We didn't speak ourselves into being. We have a definitive beginning, but our end is eternal. Meaning that like 480 gazillion years from now, we will still exist. You ever think about that? From this point onwards, there will never be a time when you do not exist. From this moment, that's incredible. From this moment onwards, there will never be a moment when you do not exist. Okay, of course, death is a reality. We'll talk about all these things. But to the Christian perspective, the soul that a human being possesses is an infinite soul. Okay, so C.S. Lewis, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Hans Urs von Balthasar is a famous thinker from roughly about 60, 70-ish years ago. He's a theologian and scholar, and he tells us that you seek the proof that you are loved, but you yourself are the proof. What is he saying? All of us want to know that we're seen, that we're liked, that we're accepted. All of us want to know that we are loved. And actually, uh, great chaos, great crisis enters into the story of humanity when it does not know that it is loved. And so I, I threw up a piece of spiritual wisdom that Jesus gave me this last week in prayer as I was praying over this talk, is that loneliness is the effect of not being known. When I am lonely and I'm anxious and I'm living out of fear, the root of that is that I believe I am not known. Loneliness is the effect 
Loneliness is the effect of not being known, of believing that I am not known. Hansers von Balthasar counters that and he says, you seek proof that you are loved, but you yourself are the proof. Okay, so John Paul II put what Hans von Balthasar is saying this way. He said that you are the sum of love, that you have been created by love and you have been created for love. Every human being, this is kind of why actually reproductive technology has become very problematic in our culture today. A hundred years ago, we used to be able to say that every human being that has ever existed was brought into existence by an act that, at least naturally speaking, is an expression of love. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so, who are you? You are the fruit of love. What have you been made for? You have been made for love. And so von Balthasar tells us that you seek proof that you are loved, but you yourself should be the most obvious proof. The fact that we exist actually is a revelation that there are people that love. That's, that, that's kind of beautiful to think about that. We are proof of love, literally, on a natural level, also on a supernatural level. And then St. John Paul II, he's kind of a prophet for the age in which we are living in a lot of ways. And St. John Paul II's famous prophecy kind of for this time is called the theology of the body. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight because that's very relevant to the topic at hand. But St. John Paul II is also a great saint of the young people, um, including kind of like even in this generation, there are a lot of young people that were born after St. John Paul II died that have a very close affinity to him. Actually, all of us probably, maybe in some way, somehow, some way, have found John Paul II to be inspiring. Pope St. John Paul II, almost every time he preached to young people, if you've heard of the World Youth Days, John Paul II is the one that started the tradition of World Youth Day. Every three years, the Pope inviting all the youth of the world to gather with him in a particular place. If you read John Paul II's homilies and remarks to young people, people at every World Youth Day he ever attended, he always said this to the young people of the world today, you are not who they say you are. You are not who they say you are. Let me remind you who you are. And so I'd like to start tonight just by asking, who do they say that you are? Another way we can think about this, in the Gospel um, of Matthew, Jesus asks a very pertinent question, and he says to the disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And I want to ask you tonight, who do they, who do, if we were going to go randomly pull people at Quick Trip that are not Catholic priests, uh, who would people tell us that we are? What would people tell us a human person is? Before we dive in, before we talk about anything, I'd love to hear just kind of a couple thoughts, a couple responses. What's a human person? What is a human being? We're going to go ask the average person at Quick Trip, what would they tell us? A living being. A living being. Anything else? Male. Some people would say male or female. Okay. Animal. An animal. Person with a soul. Person with a soul. Child of God. Very good. What's that? Someone who can reason. Anything else? Who do they say that we are? If we were going to... If we were going to go and talk to our average person at Quick Trip, what would they tell us the purpose of a human life is? What is the purpose of a human life? Happiness. Any other answers that people might tell us the purpose of life is? To be successful. What does that mean, successful? What's that? Things? To have money? Money. Sorry? Power. Enjoyment, pleasure. Keep the human race going. Okay, life, reproducing. Anything else? No purpose. There's no purpose. Very good. There's no purpose. There is no God, so there is no purpose. It's absurd to expect there to be purpose if there is no God. Very good. Beautiful. Okay, so we want to acknowledge there's a lot of things that the world tells us that a human person, that a human being is. St. John Paul II 
Frequently, every World Youth Day, when he spoke to the young people of this world, he said, you are not who they say you are. Let me remind you who you are. And the first time St. John Paul II said that as a pope, he was in Poland. He was in communist, communist Poland preaching to the young people under the communist regime. You are not who they say you are. Let me remind you who you are. Okay, so Pope St. John Paul II is a great reminder and presence and witness to all of us. And John Paul II, during the time in which communism was governing in Poland, he's actually remembered for the quiet confidence that he lived. Like, actually, when he was interviewed and kind of how he interacted with people, people were struck that, like, even at the height of communism, John Paul II was very confident that communism would fail. And so he would just, you know, remark, like, when this passes or when this falls or things like that. And so there was, at one point, people asked him, and they said, Your Holiness, how do you, I mean, like, the communists are really powerful. How do you know that this system's going to fall at some point? Do you know what his answer was? It gets the human person wrong. No political system, no ideology, no religion, no society ultimately survives the test of time when it fails to understand what a human person is. And so what we're about tonight is hopefully trying to grow our awareness, to grow our understanding, to engage the topic of what is a human being. Okay, so how we understand the nature and the destiny. So how we understand what a human person is and what a human person was made for. Okay, that lies at the very center of everything else. Okay, how you govern a nation depends on what you think a human life is, is and what it was made for. How you educate rests on what you think a human person is and what a human life was made for. Your economic system, what is a human person and for what was a human life made? Literally everything that we experience in our society rests on top of the understanding of what a human being is. Okay, does that make sense? Our understanding of a human person and a human person's destiny shapes everything else that we talk about as a culture. Okay, so what I'm going to present to you, I hope this isn't a shock or in a class with a Catholic priest, what I'm going to present to you tonight is the traditional Christian understanding, the Christian worldview that seems to have survived for the last 2,000 years about what a human person is. Okay, so is this infallible? No. But has it survived different nations, different time periods, different economic systems, different ways of educating, different ways of, yes, for the last 2,000 years. Okay, so what I appreciate about the Christian perspective of a human person is that it is rooted in reason. We live in a world that tells us that there are a lot of things that reason cannot tell you, that there are a lot of things that reason is incapable of grasping. The Catholic Church, if you were with me two weeks ago, has long been a friend to reason. And it actually is, when we're going to see this more and more in our culture today, it is really the great champion and ally and defender of honest thinking. And so the Christian perspective of the human person rests at the very origins of reason itself. And so if we're going to go back to the very origins of reason. We're not talking about saints. We're talking about famous dead Greek guys named Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. And why do we know their names? because they were famous philosophers. They were famous seekers of wisdom. And so they're some of the first people who reflect and who write about what it is to be human, what it is to be a human person. Okay, so the Christian vision of who a human person is, it's logically coherent. It is reasonable. Okay, it, recognize, it recognizes the complexity of the mess of humanity. And so the Christian perspective actually allows for the messiness of the world in which we live. Okay, a lot of other perspectives of what a human being is actually don't really acknowledge the fact that human beings create messes, it seems like, at every point uh, throughout history. And so it allows for the complexity of the messiness of the human story. And I think we're going to find that it aligns with real-world experience. Okay, we can know truth through reason, and we can know truth through what, accepting what other people tell us, and we can know truth through our own experience of it. Okay, you can learn what it's like to go to a Chiefs game, 
from someone who has been, or you can actually go and experience it for yourself. So we can learn about what we are. We can engage this topic by honestly thinking about our own experience of the world in which we live. We are experts in our own experience. Our own experience is not infallible, but we want to recognize that it's valid. And so the Christian understanding of what a human being is, it's rooted in, in uh, honest thinking, in logical coherence, in reason, acknowledging the complexity of the messiness of humanity and I think it aligns with our experience as human beings. Okay, so our approach of how we're going to engage this topic, we're not going to open the Bible. We can do that at the end if you'd like to, if you feel like we haven't opened the Bible yet tonight, okay? But our goal tonight is to think. There are a lot of voices in our culture today that will start giving you the answer about what a human person is or what a human life was made for without thinking. Okay, so the first thing that we are going to do tonight is think. All right, so human beings have the capacity to think. Is anyone disputing this? Praise God. Okay, human beings have a capacity to know. They have a capacity to think. And actually, Aristotle tells us thousands of years ago that his two most obvious things that he would point to that make a human being separate from all the other creatures that God has made is the fact that it's capable of knowing. And so Aristotle talks about that knowing is what separates a human from any other sort of creature. And Aristotle actually, he, he must have been very joyful because he talks about knowing and then he talks about risibility. Anybody know what risibility is? One's ability to laugh. One's ability actually to appreciate humor and to make jokes and to laugh. He says that's actually a reflection of humanity. We don't see fish telling jokes and laughing, okay? But we might see some animals that have a reaction that is laughter. You think of a laughing hyena, but hy hyenas aren't like, you know, telling jokes. We don't have like professional hyenas that are going on tour to entertain, right? Okay, no, right. So we want to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that intelligence and reason, a reflection of that is one's ability to laugh. Like that sets us apart from the rest of creation. Okay, so those are overarching characteristics that we could use to explain what a human person is. Okay, a human being is capable of self-reflection. Have you ever seen any other creature reflecting on what it is to be that creature? Have you ever seen a gorilla stopping and reflecting and writing a treatise on what it is to be a gorilla? No. Have you ever seen any other creature holding general elections about who the best leader of, you know, the panda bears could be? No. And so these are reflections of our ability to do something that no other creature is capable of doing. And that ability is the ability to reason, the ability to know. Um, have you ever seen other animals getting up and going to school? Have you ever seen other animals that educate their young by actually teaching them? We don't really see that in this world. So our common human experience should tell us that we are different from other animals, that it is intellectually dishonest to put a human being at the same level of other creatures, of other animals. And so if we were going to kind of to, to throw up a food chain here of creation, we would want to acknowledge that human beings and animals are not on the same level. Would you give me that? Does that, does that make sense? Okay, cool. And I mean, for funsies, if we wanted to like kind of fill this out here a little bit, what would be underneath the animals? And hopefully, like honest thinking would tell us there are other living things that are not animals that are cooler than rocks because they can grow and, you know, all these cool things. But we could say like, yeah, plants. All right. We're not doing a master's course in reality, but what would be underneath the plants? Non-living stuff, right? Non-living stuff. Okay. What would be underneath non-living stuff? Raiders fans. That's right. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. All right. We can love people that we disagree with. Okay. All right. So intelligence and reason. Okay. The fact that a human being possesses intelligence and reason separates us from all of the other things that we see in creation. To reject that is intellectually dishonest. To look past that is like not to know reality. 
Okay, so we want to acknowledge this. And we want to acknowledge that a human being's capacity to reason, that's not something that's like a matter of opinion. Like if I feel like I don't have it, then I don't have it. We want to acknowledge that to be human is to in some way possess this capacity. Does that make sense? Okay, we can even recognize members of our species who have an inhibited capacity to reason. Uh, we could think of individuals who maybe have particular mental handicaps. Okay, we would say that those people are absolutely human beings because they still in some way possess a capacity. And actually being able to, 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 to view like this, this um, part of the population actually is, is tremendously beautiful. These individuals are heroic witnesses in a very real way that to be human is to have a capacity to think and to reason. Because when we see a person that in some way is inhibited in that capacity, we definitely do not see them and treat them as animals. We recognize that to be human, to be authentically human, is to possess this capacity. And this person, maybe while lacking this capacity, in some way still possesses it because they do not live as an animal does. Are you with me? Does that? Okay, beautiful. That's very, very important. Okay, next piece of what it is to be human. We have intelligence and reason. We can know, we can think, and our knowing and thinking is a sign of freedom. We are capable of moving and operating in freedom. Human beings are free persons. They are moral agents with a capacity to make free choices. Okay, like, can you think of anything that we experience in our normal, everyday human life that would tell us you possess freedom and the culture of the United States in which you live still acknowledges that you possess freedom? Anybody ever gotten a speeding ticket? Okay, why, why would you give a speeding ticket to somebody? Because they're capable of knowing what a speed limit is, and they're also capable of, <coughs> excuse me, choosing whether or not to abide by that speed limit. So the fact that we have laws in our culture is a reflection that we live in a society that still acknowledges that to be a human being is to possess the capacity to reason and to be able to choose. That reflects intelligence and that reflects, at least in some basic way, freedom. Okay, you with me? Does that make sense? The consequence of freedom is responsibility. The consequence of freedom is responsibility. If you don't understand that, go and talk to the police, okay? They will enforce, they will make us responsible for our thinking and for our choosing on a natural level. Is anybody doubting that? Okay, beautiful, great, okay. So from, free, from reason and from freedom begets responsibility. Okay, can you think of any other ways that we could point to in, in our just common human experience and we could say that to be human is to possess freedom? Wow. All right, maybe I lost you. A soldier that leaves, that stays behind to like defend for everybody else while they escape. And that soldier who freely chooses to stay behind and to defend his territory while all of his brothers escape, okay? That soldier actually is a reflection of one who is capable of self-sacrifice. Do we see animals that embrace self-sacrifice in the same way human beings do? No. We might see animals that will jump in and, you know, in a natural way, defend their young or, to, you know, to fight or flight, so to speak. But do we see animals saying, this is a good cause, and for this cause, I will give my life? No. Okay, so animals respond in a natural way. Human beings are capable of recognizing a cause that is true, that is good, and that is beautiful, and donating themselves to that in a way that is sacrificial we would define that as the very essence of love, as we talked about last week. Okay, so could you think of any examples of that, of a human being laying down their life for a cause that is true, that is good, and that is noble? Maybe in a way that shows that like, okay, my instincts tell me I don't wanna do this, but I am freely choosing to do this. The Catholic priesthood, right? What on a natural level says a guy should give up his life and become a Catholic priest? Nothing. 
And so the fact that there are Catholic priests in this world today should be a stunning in our face reminder that their religious vocations, brothers and sisters, should be a stunning reminder to the world that to be human is to, is to possess a capacity to know and the freedom to choose whether or not to donate your life to a cause that you recognize to be true, to be good, and to be beautiful. Does that, have I confused you? Does that make sense? Okay, so to be human is to, be, is to possess intelligence and reason. Our humanity is a sign of freedom as well, that we have the capacity to donate ourselves. We have the capacity to sacrifice ourselves. To be human is to have the capacity to love. And the highest expression of love, the highest expression of love is worship. Have you ever seen animals hosting worship services? No. Okay, so the high, what separates us from the animals is our ability to know. And in our ability to know, we are capable of grasping the truth of things. And we are capable of grasping goodness. And we are capable of grasping beauty. And human beings, no other creature is capable of doing this, at least in, in the created natural world. No other human, no other person, no other being is capable of having a worship service. What does that tell us? Have human beings worshipped throughout history? Maybe it's not to Jesus, but have, he, have human beings hosted worship services? Has there been a religious muscle in humanity pretty much since the beginning of humanity? What does that tell you? It is intellectually dishonest to put humans at the level of animals. There is something fundamentally different in a human person that separates a human being from an animal. Okay, I, I, I hope we're not breaking any new ground. Okay, so the capacity to worship is... There, now, does everyone worship? Does every human being worship? No, so what would that be a sign of? Human freedom. Humans possess the capacity to choose what to love and to choose how much of, the, of themselves to give to whatever that cause is. Maybe it's God, maybe it's national defense, whatever that is. Okay, third characteristic of a human being is that we are good, but we are fallen. Okay, where in uh, Christianity for the last 2,000 years have Christians taught that human beings are perfect? Nowhere. Christians have always believed that to, be a, that to be a human being is to be a person who is created with the capacity to know and to choose, but who sometimes chooses in a way that is not good. And so how do, how do we make up for this defect in our humanity as, as Christians? What do we believe happened at the beginning of the story of humanity from the Christian perspective that actually brings kind of brokenness and messiness into the world? What is that called? Original sin. Original sin, right? The fall. So we are fundamentally, there's a fundamental and inherent goodness that separates us from the animals. Our capacity to know, our capacity to choose, our capacity to love and to worship. But we're also messy. Sometimes we use that capacity to hurt ourselves or to hurt other people. Is anybody denying that? Could we look back in the entire story of humanity and point to one culture and say, they got it, they figured it out, they did it? No, right? We can maybe point to individual persons, but we couldn't point to a civilization or society or a culture and say, yep, they had it all figured out. And so this is a reflection, brothers and sisters, that human beings are not perfect. Another way that we could say that is that human beings are fallible. What's the opposite of fallible? Infallible. Infallible. You live in a culture that tells you each and every individual human intellect is infallible. Is that a common experience? That every human being knows truth and goodness and beauty. That every, even when it, it's radically different for individual people, that in Nazi Germany, they had goodness and morality totally figured out. No, right? Humans experience literally from day one is the exact opposite of this. So huge, huge point that we are good but fallen is that means we are not infallible. That means human beings are capable of stupidity and violence and choosing things that are harmful to their nature. Would you give me that? Okay, beautiful. Praise God. That's really, really important in our culture today is acknowledging we don't have it all figured out. 
and there's never been a point in time in human history where we did. All right, number four. Human beings are social beings. Social beings, what does that mean? We are made for relationship. And we flourish the more and more we enter into authentic relationship with other people. Is that your experience of your humanity? That you actually flourish as you enter into authentic relationship with other people? That actually friendship is a good to be sought in the human story? Yes, absolutely. Okay, praise God. So what is the fundamental unit of how human beings, um, it would seem like from the moment that, they, that we entered into the story of creation, what would be the way that, that human beings kind of like form cohesive units and socialize and teach and lead? And What's that? Family. The family. The family. Okay, so we want to acknowledge that Human beings have always been social creatures who have always, from day one, associated themselves with families. With families. Name one culture in history from the, story, from the beginning of humanity onwards that taught families were irrelevant. There's never been one. What's that? Where did hermits come from? Well, they, came they came from families. Oh, wow. So Catholic priests don't have families. We can make the choice against family for altruistic reasons, for reasons that we recognize are true, good, and beautiful. But can we honestly look at human history and point to a society, point to a culture, point to a civilization that said, yeah, families, yeah, that's really not important. We don't, we, we don't really understand why, why we would have that. Actually, some of the hermits um, would be great defenders of the family. Um, even from the very, their very origin. Some of the first Christian hermits actually write beautiful theology on the importance of love, the nature of the family. And so we want to acknowledge that the family is a social entity that reflects natural human living, natural human experience. What does that mean? That means that the family is not a social construct. Families are not social constructs. What does that mean? That means that society... In order to have a conversation about society, in order to have a conversation about politics, that presupposes that there are lots of people. If there are lots of people, that implies that there are multiple families. You cannot have a conversation about society without presuming first families. You cannot have a conversation about politics without first presuming families. What does that mean? That the family is not a social construct and that the family is a pre-political unit. What does that mean? Does politics have the power to define what a family is? No. Is the family something that human beings got together when humanity finally got smart and powerful and wealthy and they just defined what a family was? No. Human beings have associated themselves, have acclimated themselves within the context of the family literally from day one. The family is a pre-political, non-social construct society. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, that's really, really important. Okay, the family is a natural community that is a pre-political unit, not a social construct. All right, the fifth important thing about human beings. This might surprise you. You have a body. <laughs> Could you name a human being that didn't have a body? So to be human is, okay, this is really important. To be human is to have a body. We acknowledge that to be human is to, is to possess a capacity to know and to choose in freedom whether or not to love, to worship, to sacrifice, things like that. We talked about that to be human is to be a member of a family, to actually to be tied to relationship, to crave, to desire relationship. To be human, very, very simple, is to have a body. Humans are embodied persons. Okay, you live in a culture that tells you that for some, somehow, some way, there is a division between a human person's body and a human person's soul. That a human being's capacity to choose is something that is separate from the body. And so the real, a real human being, a real human person, a lot of times in our culture today, is seen as this spiritual thing that's capable of willing and choosing, and our body is just something that can be used in order for us to have 
whatever we want to have. We want to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that is not consistent with reality. Human beings have always associated themselves with their bodies. When your two-year-old fell down the stairs and got hurt, you probably ran to him or her and say, are you, not is your body okay? We refer to human beings by our bodies. Does that, I hope we're not breaking new ground here. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, your body is capable of knowing through sensual experience, the experience through the senses. Okay? Are our bodies infallible? Do your, is your body capable of lying to you? Let's think about that. My mom's an amazing dessert maker. A lot of times when my mom makes a huge dessert and she puts it down in front of me, I decide, my body tells me, I want to be one with that dessert in every possible way. Okay? If I just did what my body told me to do, I would have died from some sort of sugar coma a long time ago. If I just did what my body told me to do, where would that lead? To the hospital, to jail, or to an early grave? Or all three, if we're being honest. Okay, so to be human is to possess a body, but our body is not infallible. What does that mean? That every desire and whim that my body tells me is not always consistent with what is true and good and beautiful for me. Does that make sense? Do you need more examples? Or are we good there? Are we good there? Okay, what was St. John Paul II's beautiful prophetic writings that I talked about at the beginning of this? The theology of the... We live in a culture that says bodies aren't relevant. That actually you can kind of choose whatever kind of body you would like to have. And you can modify your body, you can change your body however you would like to in order to fit what you feel. John Paul II taught the theology of the body, that actually the body, the physical anatomy of a human person, reflects God's design for their life. And so a human body is made, physically speaking, we could look at ourselves and say that we have been made for communion. We have been made for relationship. We have been made for love. That actually the human being, a human body, doesn't make sense by itself. It can only be understood in relationship to the other. Does that make sense? How many others are there? If we're looking at human bodies and the physical anatomy of a human person, how many others are there? One, there's you, and then there's the other one that would be your complement. Okay, and so if we really understood the theology of the body, we would recognize that, like, okay, is one, is one body better than the other? No. Are they the same? No. no. And so to be human is to acknowledge that there are two different, if you will, ways of being human, and those are male and female. But to be human is to acknowledge that these bodies, these physical entities, one is no greater, one is no better than the other, but they are fundamentally different. Does that make sense? By the way, how did God save us? God saved us through becoming, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on a body. And every day you're at mass, God gives you his body. Is the body important? God thinks it, it is because it's so important in God's perspective that he took on a body and he feeds us with his very body. And so you live in a culture that more or less says that the body is an illusion and you can modify it however you want to in order to get whatever you ultimately want out of life. And the Christian perspective has always been that your body reveals something to you about who you are and for what you were made and that you are your body. A human person is a body and a soul together. When we look at a dead human body, we wouldn't say that there's grandma. We would say that's grandma's body. We would recognize there's a difference between grandma when her soul is there and grandma when her soul has left home. Does that, uh, does that make sense? Okay, so to be a human being is to be an embodied person. No culture in the history of human thought has been confused about that until 2023. And so maybe we're the smartest generation in history, but we want to acknowledge that there are zero cultures in human history that have believed that to be a human being is somehow some way separate from your body. Okay, I, we good? 
Okay, you get me fired up. All right. <laughs> Number six. Okay, what is it to be a human being, to be a human person? That we are spiritual, that we are capable of interaction in a way that is not just physical. Okay, what would be, what would be maybe some reflections of this? That we can think, that we can feel, that we can be moved by another person's story. Anybody ever been on Christ or Nusa's Parish? Yeah. Have you ever been moved when you've heard the story of another person? Why were you moved by that? Because you were capable of recognizing something that was true, that was good, that was beautiful, that was not obvious to your senses, to your bodily senses, but you were capable of recognizing that, wow, that's beautiful, that's good, that's true, and there's something in you that is inspired, that is nourished, that is fed by that. Does that make sense? Okay, to be a human being is to be able to, to possess a spiritual capacity for knowing. That's a reflection of not your body. That's a reflection of your soul. <coughs> Excuse me. Another thing that would be a reflection of our soul is how much we want. Okay, so like that, this may be a crazy way of thinking about this. How much happiness do you want? You ever thought about that? How much happiness do you like? If I was going to sell you the $100 version and the $20 version of happiness, what's everybody going to choose? The $100 version, right? We want as much happiness as we can get. How much is that? Okay, so this is the story of every addict in history is that we go looking for happiness and we expect whatever we're, addict, we're ultimately get addicted to to fill that desire for happiness. Another drink, another hit, another YouTube search, another experience, another of this, another of that. And so we keep expecting that our desire for happiness is going to be totally filled. And then we realize it's not, and so we go reach for it again. So John Paul II, when he came, uh, he came to America many times, I think maybe seven or eight times, when he was a cardinal, when he was bishop of Rome, when he was pope. And one of the times when he came, he wanted to see the Grand Canyon. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? Think of a canyon that's grand, that's a huge hole in the ground. Okay, so if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you can appreciate the image. He wanted to go see the Grand Canyon. And when he stood at the Grand Canyon looking into the amazing abyss and beauty of the Grand Canyon, he reflected that it reminded him of the human heart and the human soul's desire for happiness. And then he kind of, this is like Father Luke's rough transliteration of John Paul II, but then he kind of said like, how dumb are we human beings to take a finite marble of happiness that the world offers to us and we go to this huge desire in us for happiness and we drop in that marble and we expect to fill it up and five seconds later we realize it didn't so we go to another marble of happiness that the world offers to us and we go back to that infinite longing in our human heart and we drop it and we expect to fill it up five seconds later what happens it didn't so what do we do what's the definition of insanity <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. How big is your longing for happiness? It is infinite. Another example of this, um, we just won the Super Bowl, and uh, I was ready for it this year. So the, con the clock hit zero, the confetti fell, everything exploded, the fireworks went off, and I started my iPhone timer. Two minutes and 17 seconds later, the Kansas City Chiefs are on top of the football world. They've achieved it. They've done it. What they've long awaited for, what they've dreamed for, what they've devoted their life to the pursuit of. Two minutes and 17 seconds after they won, guess what they started talking about? Next year. Why next year? You just achieved it. You did it. You're on top of the world. That's it. All the power, all the, all the honor, whatever you could want as a, as a football player. That's it. Two minutes later, next year, one wasn't enough. You have an infinite longing for happiness. What is that a reflection of? Your body or your soul? If you are a natural creature that was created by a big bang, a random explosion, a natural event, should you have infinite desires? If you were created by something that is finite, should you possess a longing for something that is infinite? Think about your stomach. Okay, like your stomach. Should your stomach desire infinite if it was made by something finite? No. So your stomach desires a finite amount of food, right? Your soul. Your soul is the footprint 
of the intelligent God who made you. We desire what is infinite. Human beings want an infinite amount of happiness. That's the footprint of an infinite being who made you. And so actually in a sad but beautiful way, when we experience the real suffering of addiction, that actually is the reflection of God. How? That person's longing for happiness is real and it's authentic and it's true. They're just looking in the wrong places and they've been looking in the wrong place so completely and for so long that they have allowed themselves to become addicted to something that ultimately can never satisfy. Does that make sense? Your desire for happiness is infinite. What is finite cannot produce what is infinite. Only what is infinite can produce what is infinite. Okay, so like some crazy Christian philosophy math, what would it take to fill an infinite longing? How many finite things would it take to fill an infinite longing? How much money would it take to fill an infinite longing? How much bodily pleasure would it take to fill an infinite longing? You need what is infinite to fill an infinite longing. So your soul was made for God. Your desire for happiness is a reflection of that. All right. And so number seven, the six and seven go together. You recognize spiritual goods, spiritual truth, spiritual goodness, spiritual beauty. And so without seeing, without feeling, without sensing, you can acknowledge and be drawn and give your life to something that is true, that is good, and that is beautiful without ever feeling that. That's what happens every time we pray. Okay. And then number seven reminds us that our desire is infinite. Our desire is everlasting. Okay, so we have an infinite longing. We are eternal beings. That means, brothers and sisters, that in order for us to make decisions in the here and now in time and space, whether it's with politics, with economics, with charity, with how we're going to live, with how we're going to treat people that we don't like, all of those things must be viewed with, the, with an eye to our ultimate destiny. And if you have an infinite desire for happiness in you, and what is finite is incapable of giving you that infinite longing, what must you look to in order to guide that infinite longing, in order to guide all the choices that you make in this life? Something that's infinite, right? Okay, and so we want to acknowledge that human destiny is not finite. Human destiny is eternal. And so we always want to live out our humanity with an awareness, with an eye to what is eternal. D does that concept make sense? Did I? Okay, beautiful, beautiful, very good. All right, so there are a lot of attacks in our culture today on identity, on the human person, on who we are and what we're about and what our destiny ultimately is. And if you remember, do you remember the gospel from this last Sunday? What was the gospel from this last Sunday? Jesus went out into the wilderness, and then I, St. Matthew is such an inferior gospel to St. Luke. Okay, St. Matthew literally took a verse in his Bible to tell it. Can you believe this? St. Matthew literally took time to write down that after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, oh, by the way, he was hungry. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Okay, all right. Couldn't figure that one out without you. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, and who comes to him? The devil. And the devil comes to him, and the devil starts attacking him. What does the devil attack in Jesus? If this is really who you say you are, if you really are the Son of God, then you should turn these stones into bread and take care of your bodily desire, feed your hunger, give yourself that sensual pleasure that you're longing for, that food. And Jesus looks at the devil and he doesn't say, you know what, that's a great idea. I mean, no, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, do you not know who I am? Satan, are you, are you so stupid that you can't recognize that I am the bread of life? that I am the one who has come to satiate the infinite hunger of my people. And so how stupid of Satan is it that he tempts the bread of life with hunger, that he tempts the one who has come to nourish the infinite hunger of our souls with hunger. And so Jesus basically turns it on Satan and says, you're attacking my identity and it's not going to work because I know who I am and I know what I'm about. So then what's the next temptation? 
Jesus, how about, okay, hunger didn't do it for you. How about, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, I bet you are interested in power. And so jump off of this parapet and we'll see how powerful you are, whether or not you can heal yourself, whether or not God will save you. And Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, that's great. Let me, let me prove to you who I am. Jesus kind of responds to Satan. He says, are you stupid? Are you not, do you not know who I am? I am God. I am the all-powerful being that created all things. There is nothing more powerful than me. Satan, take a hike. You are tempting power himself with power. How stupid is that? Brothers and sisters, do we know Jesus? And do we know what Jesus has done for us? Because Satan will always attack at the level of identity. And so Jesus is free from this temptation. He protects himself because he knows who he is and he knows what he is about. But we human beings, boy, that sensual hunger, whether it's a certain pleasure, whether it's actual physical hunger, whether it's desire for physical drink, whatever that is, boy, that tempting, that sounds really good to us, especially when we forget Jesus. Our desire for power, wow, that sounds really good to us, especially when we forget who Jesus is. And that actually the power that we're longing for is not found in this world. It's found only in his heart. And that power is called holiness. Okay, what's the last thing that Satan tempts Jesus with? The riches and honor of multiple kingdoms. If you just bow down and worship, if you just bow down, if you are the son of God, then you would be able to do this. If you were the son of God, he's, there he is, weaseling, attacking at the level of identity again. If you are the son of God, then just bow down and worship me and I will give you all power, riches, and honor and dominions. I will give you the riches of, of every nation in the world. Okay, where's, how stupid is that? Jesus doesn't fall for it because Jesus looks at Satan. He's like, dude, are you so blind? Are you so stupid that you don't know who I am? Okay, you, had, you didn't have me at hunger. You didn't have me at power. You certainly do not have me at riches and honor because my heart is the most valuable thing that has ever been seen in human history. And it is here now with you in this world. There is nothing more valuable than my heart and the love that is found in it. There is nothing more honorable than the love that is found embodied in me. And so, Satan, do you not know who I am? Do you not know what I have come to do? Take a hike. Jesus refutes Satan because he knows who he is. But we fall to Satan because we forget either who Jesus is or we forget who we are. At your core, who are you? When I taught high school theology, I kind of had it emblazoned at the front of the, the top of my, of my classroom, above the whiteboard. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you are who he says you are. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you are who he says you are. Is Jesus who he says he is? You're talking to a Catholic priest. Yes! Okay, so what does that mean? That, what, what are you then? We live in a world that tells us that you're a living being, you're a male or a female, you're an animal, you're a soul, you're, you're your reason, you're your ability to feel, you're the sum of your desires and choices. And Jesus says, no, you are loved. Period. That's what you are. You are loved. It doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how often you've done it, doesn't matter how far you have strayed, doesn't matter if you see or respond to my love. You are loved, period. And so the Christian perspective of what a human being is, is all the things that I just presented to you with the cherry on top, that you are a particularly loved child of God. You are the fruit of love, you have been made for love, and you are loved. And so what's your mission? You're made by love, you're made for love, you are loved. What's your mission? What's the purpose of your life? To love. What's the great commandment? Love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He used us. He took all of our money. He got all kinds of pleasure and riches and honor from us. No. How did he love us? How does he love us still today? This is my body. This is all of me, which is given up for you. 
And so St. John Paul II taught in the theology of the body that the mission statement of the children of God, the mission statement of a culture of life, the mission statement of God's family in this world is always going to be the mission statement of Jesus that defines every human person. This is my life. This is my body, which is given for you. Satan knows how dangerous that concept is. And so this is amazing because, right, if we're going to talk about the, the cherry on top, the Christian perspective of reality of who we are, we would acknowledge that, okay, the natural world can't tell us this, but there is a being that's above humans. What would that being be? The, the very top of the food chain of creation, it would definitely be God, the head honcho. And he is infinitely greater than anything else that he's ever made. Infinitely greater infinitely greater. That means that we are more like plants than we are like God. That's humbling for us to remember. Okay, but there's another creature as well that is in between human beings and God. Who is that? What is that? Angels. Okay, very good. All right, very good. So the amazing story of the Christian life, of the Christian faith, is that it's not the angels, it is human beings that are made in the image and the likeness of the Father. Two weeks ago, I told you that God is truth, that he is the meeting point of our minds and reality. He's the one who made our mind. He is the one who made reality. He is truth. Last week, what did I tell you? That God is not just truth. God also is, he's a perfect communion. You need three things in order to love. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's all three of those things. So what is God? Love. And so God is truth. And God is love. You are made in his image and his likeness. What does that mean that you are made for? Knowing and loving. Can you love what you do not know? No. And so your first mission in humanity, living out our humanity, is our ability to know. But as we know, then we engage our freedom to choose whether or not to donate ourselves in love. Okay, so really, really beautiful and important for us to notice that God made us in his own image and likeness. That means that God gives us the ability to know and to love. We have the ability. Do plants have the ability to know and love? No. Do animals have the ability to know and to love? No. And the angels actually, so the angels do possess this in a similar way, but they're not made in God's image and likeness in totality. And so this is incredible that like what we believe as Christians is that God actually went underneath the angels. Could you imagine if we humbled ourselves and became not even an animal, we became a plant? <laughs> God humbled himself so much he went underneath the level of the angels to commune with us in our own messy and broken and confused and anxious and murdersome, violent world. And he entered into our story. How much of our story did he enter into? Just the, everything but the suffering part, right? No, he entered into all of it, right? Loneliness is the effect of not being known. What have you experienced in your life that God does not know? Nothing. And so you live in a culture that is honestly getting diagnosed with depression and anxiety and is attempting suicide at a rate that has never before been seen in history because it convinces itself that it is alone, that it is not known. Is that true? No. Who is the enemy of the human race? He's an angel. And so what God has given us in our ability to know and to love, if we choose to know and to love, and the highest expression of our love is worship, God has come to us to raise us to the level of his own life. So it's actually said, I don't know if you know this, it's actually said by the saints, if an angel appeared to you and you were in a state of grace, that angel would prostrate itself in front of you. Why? You're in a state of grace. What does that mean? That means that the divine life of God himself is present in you. And so there's a famous saint that tells us that God came to our level to raise us to his level. God became man so that man could become 
God. The first line, if anybody's doing catechism of, of the Catholic Church in a year, first line of the catechism, God who is infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. Infinitely perfect and blessed in himself. Does that mean that he needs us? Does that mean he's lacking? Does that mean that he needs you to do some mission for him in this world? No. He's infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man, so that man could share in his own blessed life. God made us to dwell with him in his kingdom for all of eternity as members of his own family. And so this is incredible that God comes to us in our lowly level and he comes to raise us to the level of his, divine, of his own divine life. There's an enemy to humanity and that enemy hates you and he hates the merciful love of a father who wants to raise you even above his own level. Satan cannot handle the, he can't handle the truth. Satan cannot handle the truth that God would love human beings so much in their brokenness and messiness and stupidity that he would raise them to share in his own, in his own blessed life. And so while God has come to raise us in the level of creation, Satan has come to attack our identity and to push us. If he's pushing us away from God in creation, what, what is Satan pushing us towards? What would Satan be pushing us towards? Towards living and behaving as if we were animals. How do animals behave? By what? Based solely off of their feelings. How does an animal behave? However it feels like it should behave. And so fight or flight. You ever seen a dog say, man, she's really cute, but I think I'll wait till marriage. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, brothers and sisters, we laugh at that. And we would have to acknowledge that you and I live in a culture that refuses to acknowledge the truth of who a human being is and what a human being was made for. Because you and I live in a culture that refuses to treat human life with dignity. And so I can't imagine a more dehumanizing way to look at a human person and to treat a human person than a way that says, basically, you are only what you desire. And so we are going to treat you as an animal because you are nothing other than an animal. And so we're going to help you do whatever you want to do so that you can behave as an animal behaves. How does an animal behave? However it feels like it should. And so how sad is it that we live in a moment in our culture's history where it is championed as freedom to reject truth, goodness, and beauty and to just go off and live like animals. And so you and I live in a very special moment and a very important moment in the life of our culture. Jesus is looking for witnesses who are willing to be brave and honest and who are willing to be real enough to walk out into a world that says you're, you're a bunch of animals, live however animals live, and to live a life that shows, no, there is so much more to what you were made for. And so St. John Paul II reminds us, you are not who they say you are. Let me remind you who you are. And who are you? You are a beloved child of God who was made by truth and love and who has been made for truth and and love. And the highest expression of what we can do as a human life is give ourselves in loving worship to this God who is truth and who is love. That's the highest thing that we are capable of doing. And so what do we call the human beings that have attained that highest level of humanity? They have grown so much in their humanity that they commune at the level of God. What do we call those people? Saints. Saints. And good try. Thank you. <laughs> And guys, this is you every time you receive the Eucharist in a state of grace. Every time you receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, that's what's happening in you, is that you are sharing in the very life of God himself. Okay, division is not a sign of God's work. Truth and love are, by their nature, intrinsically united. And so we live in a culture that says that Truth and love are two separate things. We live in a culture that says a human person is a body or a soul, but they're not a unity. God always works to unite. And so God's desire is to unite his children with himself. 
And so we would do well to recognize that the movement towards God is God working in us. That's the, the actualization that brings us to the fullness of our humanity. And the movement towards animal, animalistic living and thinking and behaving is a movement away from God. And that would be the reflection of the enemy of God working in our world. And so how do we reject him? How do we counteract him? How do we like tell him no? By knowing who Jesus is and by knowing what Jesus has done for us. And so when he tempts you with hunger, you say, do you not know who Jesus is? And do you not know that I belong to him? Everything I hunger for is found in him. When he tempts you with power, the response is, do you not know Jesus? And do you not know the power of his own holiness in life that he has given to me every time I receive a sacrament? That's what I want in my life, real power. And when he tempts you with riches and honor, Satan, do you not know that I wasn't made for the things of the world? Do you not know Jesus? And do you not know what he's done for me? That he gives me the most valuable thing that has ever been given in history, which is his own heart and his own love. And so we pray for the grace in a special way to recognize Jesus and to acknowledge Jesus for who he is and to live in the truth of his love and of his freedom, that we might live well our truest identity, which is that of children of God. And so let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for coming.